Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, April the 18th. Or is it the 18th? Yes, Tuesday the 18th of April 2023. Uh, the Atlantic magazine, which is always ahead of us, now has the cover of their May issue. And it's quite a memorable cover. It's American Madness. Uh, it features a story by Jonathan Rosen, my childhood best friend, a brutal killing, and the country's failure to help the mentally ill. Um, it's quite a story. Uh, and... Uh, Summarizing, thousands of people with severe mental illness have been failed by a dysfunctional system. My friend Michael was one of them 25 years ago. He killed the person he most loved. Uh, the story is taken from a major new book by Jonathan Rosen, The Best Minds, a story of friendship, madness, and the tragedy of good intentions. And I'm thrilled that Jonathan is joining us uh, from his home uh, on the upper west side of manhattan uh jonathan congratulations on the book thank you thank you very much uh i i joked or i half joked that the atlantic's always ahead of us with this may issue do you see your book um it's it's a very personal book and i want to talk about the story of, of your dear friend um but do you see it also as an attempt to think or rethink um, the current debate on mental illness, which is a huge debate? Um, we've had many different shows about it one way or the other. Um, I certainly didn't conceive of it that way at all. Uh, but then I really wasn't sure what it was going to be when I started writing it. It was as much an, an encounter um, with a terrible thing that happened 25 years ago, as you say, but also an encounter with my friendship, which began 50 years ago. And um, it had not occurred to me that, um, I guess everything about my own life, because it always seemed so personal, seemed um, very particular to me or to my friend, Michael. He was especially Michael because he had a very particular kind of life. He was brilliant. Um, he didn't seem representative. And I didn't feel representative, but in going back that far, it was as much how this thing happened, how he killed the person he loved, uh, that came to feel like a mystery that involved, you know, the culture. When I was a kid, the 60s was what we'd missed, but wished we hadn't. The 70s was what we grew up in. But while we were thinking about it as music, all these changes were happening in the culture, in the understanding of mental illness in the treatment of people who were ill, in the closing of hospitals, so that when Michael got sick, he got sick in a world that had undone many of the things that needed to be there. And so it started out just encountering the story, but it came almost to feel like a murder mystery, even though I knew Michael had killed Carrie, in which everyone was involved in some complex way. And it kind of kept radiating out, I guess. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. Here we have an image of you and your friend, Michael Lauder. Uh, you grew up together. And then a photo for people watching of Michael and his fiancée, Caroline Costello, who he 
murdered. Amazing uh, photos. Michael in classic uh, Yankee jersey when he was growing up. And then Actually, that's me in the Yankee jersey. Oh, that's <laughs> you in the Yankee jersey. Michael's looking up a few... Uh, a few a few kids away two kids away he's staring up you only see his chin in the image that i see but yeah well that maybe that's fraud that's a yeah that's a a freudian coincidence that we knocked his head off um uh, jonathan the story is remarkable in its own right but i'm equally intrigued by your involvement tell me a little bit about your friendship with Michael? Uh, well, I met Michael when I was 10 years old, when we moved to New Rochelle, which is a Westchester suburb of New York City. I met him right away. We shared a short street and uh, I would call for him every day before school. Uh, we did everything together. We competed for everything. And we went to the same camp. We went to the same kind of egghead camp at one point. Neither of us told the other we'd applied and we'd both gotten in. Um, he was very smart and he had... A, you were he, hardly a schmuck though. I mean, you both had professor fathers. We both had professor fathers. And in a way, it seemed to everyone as if we were just literally parallel or parallel in more ways than the houses opposite each other. But... To me, we, we were actually, we always seemed and felt very different. My father was a professor of literature who'd fled uh, Austria, Vienna, when he was a teenager. His parents were killed. My sister is named for my murdered grandmother. I'm named for my murdered grandfather. Michael's father was a professor of economics, grew up in Brooklyn, wore a bomber jacket, uh, and had this fantastic, aggressive way of presenting everything. I had a sister who let me win at Monopoly and I let her win at Monopoly. Michael had two other brothers and just to walk in the door was to enter a kind of Darwinian scrimmage. You know, you there's a, there's really a fictional quality to Michael. Uh, I mean, he could have stepped out, maybe he did out of a Philip Roth novel or something. I suppose so. I mean, in a way he was also very precocious. And so he had about him a kind of... Um, odd quality. I mean, the way I describe it is he was like Merlin or, you know, Benjamin Button. He was living backwards. He'd already, he'd already had a childhood somewhere. Um, he always knew what, a what adults knew, uh, but he also, unlike me, read very, very fast. I was dyslexic without knowing it. And so for me, although I compensated by talking fast uh, and I lived in a literary house where you soaked up stories, uh, I read with great slow difficulty and michael read at breakneck speed do you he also think had a photographic that he, memory do you think that he 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 learned how to appear smart that there's something about him that um you say there was this mythical quality almost a magician he, he learned all this all the tricks of the trade including tricking himself that's a very shrewd thing to say in a way the, the reason I was mentioning that I myself had a learning disability, as we would call it now, it was simply because I was always busy, uh, immersed in subterfuge. You know, you, uh, I didn't, had I really read it or I'd count around the table when we read around the room and at like Passover and if somebody went to the bathroom, I was screwed. Um, so I always assumed that his mind was all overtness and I was the one full of concealment. But after he became sick, 
the way you described it captures something. I sometimes thought he was like someone who'd had a great fortune uh, and lost everything, but he still had a beautiful suit. Right, and, and that's the, the know, Gatsby quality. That which, which but when he wore up. the suit, you assumed he still had the house and the job and all the world that went with it. And But actually, a tremendous amount of his energy went into sustaining the suit, weaving the suit, so that uh, people... You know, there's kind of a presumption of the of the of the rest of you, and so in a way, it became it was what was tragic was that he off he was concealing the his illness, and then after he was um, stopped taking his medication, I guess he still was treated as though he were well, although really it was clear he wasn't. Yeah, I mean, in the in the photos of him, the photo again for people not. People watching, they can see the photo if you're just listening. It's a photo of him when he was arrested in 1998 for the murder. He looks in this photo, and maybe I'm being unfair, like a Hollywood star being arrested in a movie. He's an incredibly good-looking, hirsute young man with a thick beard. There's something uncanny about him, something very eerie. He was always ahead of you, um, Jonathan, when you both got into Yale, he told you that he probably wouldn't see you very often at Yale because you were always behind him. Was there an element of cruelty about him, do you think? I it don't was a very unkind it, thing to say. It was a very unkind thing to say. Um, and I felt I'd finally caught up. I passed my driving test. Um, and I. It, it's interesting because it, in a way we, I, it, it it, it makes it sound as though I was only always measuring myself against him. But I, I actually think in certain ways that isn't wholly true. And I came to realize more and more that there were things about me that he required or needed. And when he told me, he told me stories all the time. He had a compulsion to tell me the plots of things. And he read a lot more than I did. Uh, but the way I listened mattered and so it was a break it didn't just feel like it was a putting me aside it it felt like putting an aspect of himself aside too but yeah it was enormous arrogance and for all i know that was a beginning inkling of his later illness although it's also just possible it's how he felt how uh, did you feel about him when you were at yale when he when you didn't have much to do with, with each other, and it seemed as if that was in, in part his choice when you were such close friends when you were growing up. Well, our, our friendship had um, always had these points of, of um, strain. He quit the newspaper when I became the editor uh, because he didn't want to work under me, but I, had, I knew I would have worked with him or for him. When we, but, um, and when we got beaten up, it was not uh, his fault in any way. I got beaten up. He got away, but I actually thought his getting away was part of his being aware of the world, whereas I was lost in thought. And I realized well, he could have stayed and that. protected He's, you. He could. He. It was. There were a lot of kids, and he he felt bad about it. Though it, we never spoke of it, it hung over us. And as I mentioned in the book later, when he became sick, I felt like I had run away. Um, but when I was, yeah, I was so happy to be in college. I was just, uh, for me, it was my chance to have my deferred adolescence. And so in a way it, it, our friendship had, had drifted, although we continued to see each other. What bound us was the street we shared. What bound us was this childhood friendship, which more and more, especially when things happened later, I felt as if it were a kind of almost sibling 
connectedness, which can come with all kinds of, you know, competitiveness, rivalry. Um, yeah, it's, you, you clearly were family in an odd way. And then you, you went to Berkeley, you uh, to study English literature, you, you didn't get your doctorate, but at Berkeley, and quoting from the, um, the Atlantic piece, uh, you, we, we were joking before we went live, we were both there in the 80s when there was the cult of a certain Frenchman, a man called Michel Foucault, and you joke or half joke at Berkeley when you're in the English department, you learned that mental illness is a social construct. What was going on in the 80s in terms of Foucault and this obsession with mental illness and this neo-Marxian critique of capitalism? How, how do you make sense of it and how does it connect with your story of Michael? Well, I think one of the things that astonished me was how central the metaphor of madness has been in the 20th century to all kinds of people uh, who kept borrowing the metaphors of the, of the very ill. I mean, Freud didn't treat people with psychosis, but he derived what he saw as principles from them the way he derived them from dreams. Uh, but the genius of Freud was to redefine what he called the psychopathology of everyday life. So in America, psycho psychiatrists who were largely psychoanalysts didn't have to be in mental hospitals. They didn't have to be in asylums where they were called alienists. If everyone suffers from the psychopathology of everyday life, then you can have an office like a dentist and treat people formally considered well. And so that borrowing of mental illness and a kind of redistributing of it to everyone uh, transformed psychiatry, but of course it also you know, left behind those who were severely ill. I mean, psychiatrists were the first group to be deinstitutionalized because they could leave and, and practice a different kind of psychiatry. Not all of them, of course, but um, law professors, you know, when Michael went to Yale Law School, despite schizophrenia, he was mentored and really tended to by very kind-hearted professors who had clerked for judges who had changed the institution, the laws of institutionalization back in the 50s in one case and the 60s in another. And there too, they were steeped in Freudian thinking. They didn't really have any experience with, the sever with severely ill people. One of them had come up with a redefinition of um, the insanity defense as a way of kind of redistributing it to people who had just committed small offenses, but the feeling was that because they were marginalized, poor, black, oppressed in various ways, they should have a way not to go to jail and be considered not responsible. And so it wasn't uh, broadening the conventional definition. It was creating a new definition of insanity, but it was like you were treating the asylum almost like a central bank. You know, you reached in and you borrowed a metaphor and you gave it out. But meanwhile, those who were most ill, severely ill, severely in need were continually being betrayed. Uh, and then in a, in a way, in the 60s, especially someone like R.D. Lang, the Scottish psychiatrist who declared that schizophrenia and mental illness is the only sane response to a mad world. And that is a true inversion of right. and values. We grew up, we all grew up with one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You write about that in, in your piece. The, the really... I mean, all this is a double tragedy or a triple tragedy, but the particular tragedy, it seems, in part of your friend's life 
was that he traded on his own schizophrenia, on his own insanity, to reiterate the sort of the highly insular intellectual world that you grew up in. He traded on it to get into Yale Law School. He traded on it to have sexy features written about him in the New York Times. He traded on it to get a book deal. So it, it, you, your narrative is, a, is, a, is, is, is one of double or triple insanity. Yes, I, I don't see him as having traded on. Yeah, it. and I use that word carefully. I, I, you know, and I, I don't mean it in that way. Maybe it's a better word to use. Well, no, I, but I mean, what's interesting is he, he, is, he applied to law school before he had his psychotic break. Um, and then they accepted him. They had accepted him already, and, they'd allow, and they allowed him to come. And what was fascinating is that he was brilliant, but he couldn't do the work. And they understood that. And so there was a space already between what he imagined about himself and what people felt was a way of accommodating him. But it was a complicated accommodation simply because if he couldn't do the work, then he was, um, he was already, he was living in somebody else's partial fantasy, but, but he wasn't exploiting it. It's just that he lived in a world that, um, had certain assumptions and presumptions about people with mental illness. And also there was simply, th th there were very few places for someone like Michael to go to get the kind of care he needed. And so it did become a tragedy. The, the, the amazing thing is that the Times wrote a profile of him because he wasn't able to get hired. Uh, first time he didn't get hired, it's because he was told not to tell anyone he was ill. So he wasn't trading on it, but he couldn't explain why he hadn't done the things that law students did who applied to be academic law professors. He hadn't clerked for a judge. He'd only spent a very ill-fated summer working at a law firm. Uh, and so he, he said it wasn't intellectually stimulating and he didn't get hired. But then he described himself the second time he tried as what he called a flaming schizophrenic. He came out as someone with severe mental illness and the Times wrote the piece about him. And what was extraordinary about it is that as a result of that piece, he came to the attention of Hollywood. He came to the attention of the publishing world. He suddenly had to. Yeah, he was going to write a law of. Uh, well, the laws it, of madness. It was going to become a Ron Howard movie. And this reminds me when it comes to Yale Law School, I'm sure you're familiar with the work um, of a professor there who's written about the crisis of meritocracy. His name suddenly escapes me. I just remembered it before. And maybe I'm doing I'm, ma I'm, I'm making the same mistake as 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 some of the others you're you're criticizing. But is the the madness that your your friend was was afflicted with, is it in a way a, a, a consequence or bound up in the the world of Yale and Yale Law School and this incredibly competitive world where everyone's miserable? Um, Michael had schizophrenia. It doesn't get, Yale doesn't give it to you. Competitiveness doesn't give it to you. He had that mysterious genetic predisposition interacting with environment and got this terrible disease, which is it sounds awful to say that it's terrible. It, there are medications for it. People do extraordinary things. So there was, there is an amazing woman, Ellen Sachs, who's written a beautiful memoir, who went to Yale Law School while Michael and I were undergraduates, who had suffered from schizophrenia. 
wrestled with taking medication, but finally did, and uh, really became everything we all imagined Michael might become. She wrote a best-selling memoir. She won a MacArthur Genius Award. She's a law professor. But uh, what I would say is that um, Michael and I were raised in an environment where being smart was not just a tool you would use, but you want being smart was like an inoculation against ordinary existence. And I don't know where that came from, but what was extraordinary to me was- Well, you how, do know where it came from. Well, it came from more than one place, actually. I had always imagined in a way that it was just the pressure of an immigrant you know, family, or in Michael's case, once removed from immigrant life. Um, but it turns out, I kept discovering that these things that seemed particular to me or to us, were, were really quite universal. You know, the, the Michael's professors had all cracked the closed door of the WASP elite world and gone to places like Yale, which wouldn't have taken them, but you know, before then. And, um, and they were really smart. And what's unusual about it though, is that they somehow felt that their position as in this meritocracy allowed them to bestow on someone who didn't do the work, the same, um, it, it was as if it, their arrival was a quality they could share with others, whether they um, followed the same steps or the stages. You know what I mean? As if they could knight you. Yeah, it's, it's you in a way, it, it's as if the inmates were running the asylum. By the way, the law professor is Daniel Markovitz, another figure I'm sure you're familiar with from a similar, I think, background to you and uh, and your friend. Um, you know, thinking of this intelligence thing brings to mind, he, he, he had this quote that you, you, um, you, he, you say he liked to say, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. Yeah. And given what you just said, it's almost like an excuse that um, almost like a, a Faustian trade, is it that? I think he gave was, up his sanity to be to be a genius. But I, I think there was a genuine sense that if you were smart, it meant you weren't crazy. And many people mistake intelligence for worth. They mistake it for sanity. They mistake it for uh, clarity of mind. And that's that's was very interesting to me. That's what I mean when I say, where did we get this notion from? You know, because it that was not once the basis for equality in the country. It was it was a soul worth. You know, everyone's made in, created equally. Uh, in the progressive era, if you if you get rid of that notion of the soul as the source of your intrinsic worth, or some or just at least the institutions that were founded on that idea, then all you really have is the measurable mind. And so, even progressives like Louis Brandeis voted with the uh, opinion of Oliver Wendell Holmes in this famous, infamous 1927 case where Holmes declared that it was acceptable to sterilize a woman and her daughter and her mother who had already been sterilized and said three generations of imbeciles are enough uh, because he was afraid that the country was being you know, drowned by, in what he called incompetence. And so intelligence, the intelligence test was given to her. It, it wasn't a, something that might put you in a harder class or recognize your ability. 
your your autonomy and freedom were based on it. And so there's a way in which, although there was a great recoil from that after the Second World War and people saw how horrifying eugenics was, uh, in a weird way, because they were so horrified by that, they embraced psychoanalysis all the more because that was a story. It was a myth. It was a narrative. It wasn't right, the, the, the biological. Co- yeah, and that's um, um, another reason or a piece of the, the Foucault uh, critique you have. The, the subtitle of the book is very good. Uh, it's, the book is called The Best Minds, A Story of Friendship Madness. We've talked a lot about that. And the tragedy of good intentions. There's a policy element in the book too, Jonathan. It's not just a personal story. What, what is the tragedy of good intentions? Was it that people afflicted with mental illness should be as, as free as everyone else? Was it the Freudian, Foucaultian element? Where's the real tragedy here of these good intentions? There, it, it happened at many levels. I mean, in 1963, which is the year Michael and I were born, John F. Kennedy announced his last major policy before he was assassinated, which was uh, to replace what he called cold custodial care of the asylum of the state hospital with the warmth of community care. Um, and it, the truth is state hospitals had fallen into terrible state and the idea of community care is a wonderful one. Um, Unfortunately, what happened is that the centers created to care for the people who were released from hospitals didn't ha- did not give care to the most afflicted. Um, and what, what's really quite cruel is that the very definition of mental illness was changed. So instead of being the severe mental illness that afflicts, you know, three or four percent of the population and the small fraction of that number of people who can't be helped by medication, who are non-responsive to it, who don't comply with it, who have as a symptom of their illness, the conviction that they're not ill at all. And that as Michael sometimes felt medicine was poisoning him. Um, that's the group that was supposed to be helped. But instead what happened is that um, although antipsychotic drugs were developed in the fifties, the psychoanalytically oriented psychiatrists, instead of realizing that there, that there are organic brain diseases, not everything is caused, as Freud said, by repression and childhood you know, um, experience that you then tamp down and, and that makes you ill in different degrees. It's actually caused, in this case, by biological factors. Instead of recognizing that and reorienting psychiatry, they kind of used antipsychotic medication to just discount those who were in the asylum. Well, we'll medicate them. And they also applied a, an inappropriate public health frame. Prevention, Kennedy talked about it too. There'll be prevention, treatment, and cure. Well, there are no yet treatments. Of, there's no prevention for people with severe mental illness. So you can't, and they, the assumption was if we treat people who aren't yet in that place by you know, helping them, giving them psychological care, they won't become sick like that. And so it was a flawed notion that expanded the power, but it also abandoned those who would most need the help. It would be like knocking down Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital so you could then create mobile cancer centers. But you decided not to call them cancer centers. You decided to call them wellness centers. And instead of giving chemotherapy, you taught yoga and diet. And yoga and diet can be very helpful, whether you're going to get cancer or not. But if someone needs chemotherapy, you will not help them. And so, and that's because many things were, cha- were taking place and changing at that time. So it was a kind of perfect storm, but the good intentions 
we're we're going to get people out of these horrible. But places. is there an ideological element to these good intentions? Um, uh, you you write the biggest improvements in people's mental health can happen when they are involuntary hospital hospitalized. Um, uh, at least a, a psychiatrist who uh, works with the homeless told you. Has this all got mixed in with? American libertarianism, either on the left or the right, which resists law, the state, rules, and suggests that uh, people shouldn't interfere in other people's lives, which may explain not just homelessness, but the psychotic nature of life on the street in towns like New York and, and San Francisco, where you and I live. Yeah, well, it certainly partially explains it. I mean, the... The idea, though, that, right, uh, people, many people felt, I think, that they were honoring Michael's autonomy, even when it was clear he'd stopped taking his medication, and that to intervene or interfere would be, a, you know, a, a violation of it. Actually, they weren't honoring his autonomy. They were, um, they were betraying it because his illness uh, it had made it impossible for him to tell what was real and what wasn't. And at some, a certain point, he wasn't letting his girlfriend into the apartment because he didn't recognize her anymore. But how we got to that place is not simple. Everything sounds backwards like a conspiracy theory. That's one of the reasons I started in childhood. I didn't want it to look, looking back, as if it were all, as one of Michael's professors said to me, a tragic inevitability. He said that afterwards as if to say nothing we could have done. But for just to give a small example, in the New York Times profile, uh, Michael talked about how he was asked by someone interviewing him if he ever became violent. And he explained to the reporter, who dutifully reported it, that you know that was a very hateful stereotype. And though it is a hateful stereotype, I also knew that Michael had been patrolling his house with a kitchen knife when he thought his parents had been replaced by Nazi replicas. And so just not just his inability to know what was real and what wasn't was dangerous. And to acknowledge that must have seemed like it would be stigmatizing. But in fact, the failure to acknowledge it and to get someone care uh, is stigmatizing because then instead of being in the Times leaning against a column in the law school, he was on the cover of the Post three years later under the giant word psycho. And it's almost as if people can only make room for something and it's opposite. You know, and the thing about you mentioned One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that movie came out when in the 70s when we were kids. And uh, I mean, it was based on a novel that had been written a decade earlier. But the hero of that movie, uh, McMurphy, is not mentally ill. He's there almost by mistake. He's like a Kafka character who woke up, shouldn't be there. And so the idea that the person exposing what's wrong with um, the, the, with psychiatric care in, in a hospital, uh, the idea that he isn't ill is extraordinary because Michael would sometimes say to me when he was living in a halfway house, I'm the McMurphy character, which is to say he's, he didn't see himself as being ill. And then the guy who made the movie, um, whose name escapes me, but it's famous, uh, Milo Forman, um, yeah. who had fled Soviet Czechoslovakia, had seen the whole thing as a story about Soviet repression of the individual. And uh, the only thing I would add is when you mentioned Foucault, for some reason to study literature, you have to read Madness and Civilization. For, for what Foucault does that I found so devastating is that he takes um, 
the kind of the hero of French uh, reform psychiatry, uh, this enlightenment figure, uh, Philippe Pinel, who famously struck the chains from his patients. Uh, whether he actually did, maybe it was assistant, is less the point. He's often painted heroically doing that. He was, he was freeing them so he could give them humane care. For Foucault, that's a sinister act, and Pinel is the villain, because any act of reforming something that needs to be torn down is destructive because it makes it harder to tear it down. And this impulse, instead of reforming the state hospitals that were created out of reforming impulses that had been caring for people with illnesses for over 100, with severe illnesses for over 100 years, yet turning it into the Bastille and like knocking it down was much more appealing. But in the end, it left just the ruins of a system. And so if people needed to be hospitalized, they couldn't go back to the hospital because that hospital was largely, um, many were closed. And also then to shut the door behind that act, the laws were changed to make violence essentialist. In, in Jonathan, there's another, I mean, the, the way in which Foucault seems to have infected, I don't quite know how he's done it, maybe it was his bald head, but he seemed to have infected a broader culture, seems to have also created this connection between capitalism and mental illness. So we did a show a couple of years ago with somebody called Roy Richard Grinker, who wrote a whole book, and I'm sure there's a whole library of these, a whole tradition of books about capitalism and mental illness. Foucault, of course, in his own way, was a follower of, of anti-capitalists like Marx. Is there a danger of, or has there been a danger of abstracting out um, mental illness so that it becomes a metaphor for the rottenness of modernity in one form or another, which clearly is in its own way a tragedy? Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, it, it's, it, it, would be to, it would be a complex journey to try to dive into that. I mean, a book that was also becoming very popular, which Foucault wrote an introduction to is Anti-Oedipus, which is Capitalism and Schizophrenia. And as I never got all that far in it, but it seems to be both that capitalism causes schizophrenia, but that schizophrenia is a way of rebelling against it, as if the state of madness itself is somehow liberating. And um, of course, this is an enormously destructive formula, but it also is a formula that in its metaphorical way might delight people in college, but it leaves, it makes people who are truly ill, um, it, it, it makes it almost impossible to help them. Uh, and and, and, and that in a way, so yes, there's this very specific kind of theory. And I, I write a little bit in the book, one of the things that really interested me was that um, deconstruction, which doesn't seem like it has a whole lot of political or cultural content, is so absolutist in its assertion of the impossibility of making meaning that it's almost as if it's borrowed the linguistic um, formulations of people who are ill. And Harold Bloom, who I took classes with, um, he had been a deconstructionist initially in a kind of vague fellow traveling way, but he rebelled against it. And one of the things he said later is that um, he wrote is that uh, schizophrenia makes for very bad poetry is what he said. And it, it, he, he spoke of the Holocaust also as the other element that transformed his thinking. But he, has, he had in his family someone 
who had severe mental illness. And so he understood its reality. And so, and he understood that the ability to make meaning is essential. Uh, you may be a weak poet or a strong poet, as he liked to say, but you can't misread something creatively to make your own strong poem. That was his own uh, formula. If you don't have the ability to make sense and language, and if, if language doesn't mean anything. And so you knew that in the case of the professor, they didn't really believe that these ramifying tiny gaps in language opened up so many spaces that nothing could ever mean anything. I mean, you knew if you said your fly is open, he would look down immediately. and The gap between the signifier and the signified would not be all that big in the end. But nevertheless, as a philosophy, it erases distinctions. And yeah, the it's, inability it's... to tell, make distinctions is, is one of the is one of the terrible aspects of a thought disorder. Which and the intellectual right. fraud is it denies, because it takes everything over, it, it it suggests that you can't really argue against it because, anyway, it's another probably another book for you. Uh, <laughs> given that Michael at times thought that he was a character in um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and often people who are afflicted with mental illness don't think they're mad, I wonder what you think of this new trend of, Mental health, mental health activism, the idea that the next wave of civil rights is going to be those of, of people afflicted with one kind of mental ill health or another. We did a show with Phyllis Vine about this. I think she has good intentions, like lots of the characters in your book, but should we be very wary of the idea of associating or mixing up civil rights with mental health? Uh, I, I don't, yes, I, I, I think it can. I mean, it, let me put it like this. I don't know enough about that particular situation, but I can say that the, uh, certainly the motivation of say Michael's professors who had been very active in the civil rights movement, uh, when they came, when they turned to mental illness, they assumed it was an extension of the same thing. So it was possible to believe that tearing down the walls of a mental hospital was like tearing down the walls of a ghetto. It was like desegregation. Uh, the unintentional right. insult behind that is that black people were discriminated against because of the color of their skin and not because they, um, they had an illness. And so it, it doesn't serve either group well um, to make it all one fungible thing. Unfortunately, the language of the civil rights struggle is, is kind of the language we all, we all speak. Um, but it, 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 look, it raises the hardest of questions. Yeah, because, these are, you know, we have a couple more things. I, I don't want to keep you too long because you've been very generous with your time. We did a show on the Slender Man stabbing. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that one, but it seems as if the issue of mental health is more and more central and the, the, the violent crimes around it. What, what are the numbers, Jonathan, in terms of, crimes and the, the level of uh, psychiatric illness in this country it, it, it's it's i know it's a huge debate amongst policymakers and doctors themselves uh one of the people um who bl who blurbed your book was um thomas insell who is a the senior uh figure in california mental health um he argues that it's on the rise how 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 central how dominant is this rise of mental of mental ill health in america today well again the the term is so broad that it 
I'm I'm sure it's on the rise because if nothing else, all those lockdowns. Uh, you know, I, I have two young daughters. One came home from college. One was in her last year in high school. It definitely doesn't contribute to your mental well-being. Um, but the 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 withholding of treatment from severely ill people who do not know they're ill and who cannot care for themselves is a cruelty that often is disguised as a kindness or a sensitivity to their civil rights. And that's the issue that is, 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 is the most, um, is the one that I think leads to what people most see. And whenever people say to me, well, I don't really write about policy and the magazine I did, uh, but the main policy is don't lie. So don't pretend that you're defending someone if they're dying in slow motion before you. Um, and there are some illnesses that are, that really affect the way the mind works. The brain is connected to the mind. Treating people, if I was unconscious, you might on the sidewalk, you might not know if I had a stroke or a heart attack or a low blood sugar. I'd like to think you would call 911. And the days of putting people away and, until infinity are, are long over. The real problem is that there aren't enough hospital beds. And, um, and there are so many other things that would take up all our time. But in a way, those are the things that are important to talk about because it's the distinctions that matter. Not right, the distinction the between category. sadness and depression and uh, pessimism and, and the kind of illness that your friend had. You said you mentioned policy in your piece. You did. You talked about the CARE Act, which is not the, the COVID Act, the Community Assistance Recovery and Empowerment Act in California, yeah. uh, which you seem quite sympathetic to. Newsom um, is pioneering this but i think you suggested there was a similar act in new york too the, uh, yeah i'm sorry my cat keeps leaping over me and dragging my earplugs out um the similar act yeah, it's, it's motivated by a similar impulse which is to identify again not the vast fungible world of people with what we call mental illness but the percentage of people three or four percent who are uh, afflicted by severe psychotic disorders that if untreated makes it impossible for them to recognize that they're ill, care for themselves or understand that they're living um, or distinguish between what's real and what isn't. And um, what's interesting about a maybe potential shift is that this time um, when a disability rights group protested the CARE Act, parents of people with severe mental illness protested the disability rights group with signs that said hospitals, not jails and um, untreated psychosis kills. Many people present a false notion that it's the choice is between a lifestyle choice to live as you wish and um, being forced to go to the hospital. But it's important to recognize that someone who is not aware of his own illness and who cannot care for himself is likely to wind up in jail are likely to wind up killed. And so at least, as I say, be honest about all of those things, have the conversation, which we haven't had for a very, very long time, I think. And um, fixing it is, I also like to say, look, it took conservatives and liberals many years of working together to destroy the state hospital system. And it will take them many years working together to put it together again. Final question, Jonathan, you've been very, as I said, you've been very generous with your time. Um, you've written an incredibly eclectic collection of 
books. You you had a book, The Talmud and the Internet, A Journey Between Worlds. Uh, another book, The Life of the Skies, Birding at the End of Nature. And then you've written a couple of novels, one about um, uh, uh, a teenager who almost starved themselves to death. To write the kind of book that you've written, which is personal and historical and cultural and political and all the rest of it, I'm guessing, how do you fit this book into your own, uh, you've got a big library behind you, but your own personal library? Is this book almost an accident? Is it something you've been thinking about for years? It's the most personal book you've written. It is, it is the most personal book. One of the things that was strange I, that I, I sort of keep half saying, because I'm really never sure how to say it, is that, you know, on the one hand, my father's parents were killed in the Holocaust. On the other hand, which seems like a strange anomaly in a way <laughs> for a suburban kid, uh, but actually the Holocaust cast transformed psychiatry in the post-war world. My mother is a writer. She liked to refer to the character in Howard's End who gets crushed by a bookshelf. So whenever I see my own bookshelf behind me, I'm always expecting the interview to end that way. Um, my mother was a writer and it seemed again, like just a peculiarity of this literary childhood that I had, or not literary childhood, but a childhood in which literature was the touchstone of reality. That that was something which I needed to sort through and like, escape in a certain way from, you know, I don't believe the world exists to be put into a book, as Mallarmé said, which my mother also liked to quote. My mother and father were both deeply immersed in literature, as am I, but who would have thought that Freud would take literature and turn it into medicine, you know, or say that you're made ill by a Greek myth and that the cure is telling a narrative. And it must have seemed so exhilarating that the principles of literature were everywhere, but in fact, not only did that distort literature, I think, in certain ways, it distorted all those worlds because not everything is a story. And to make one connection to another one of my books, yeah, I love birdwatching. But one of the things about birdwatching that I find so amazing is that, and I was an urban, I am an urban person, but I live right near Central Park. And you'd always, if you're doing, if you're birdwatching, I always feel like you're doing two things. Uh, and one of them is that it used to be a guidebook. You take something, you take a guidebook, you take the library world outside with you, or now it's on my phone. So you got like the Linnaean world of scientific classification. You see a bird, you know its name. It's the same name everybody else will give it. But at the same time, you're doing that and kind of drawing the bird into the indoor world of libraries and classification. The bird is pulling you outside. And you're if you see it right, you see it, in that as a wild animal beyond your ability to name or ever wholly know it. And so Michael had schizophrenia, that's a real illness, but he also was my friend and every, and how much you see it as it is in a concrete way and how much does it reverberate in my life in that unknowable and unnameable way. Right, and that's the that's weird the thing tension. about the book is, is it, it's, it's a book about two people. One person you knew intimately, your very, very best friend who you went to all these schools with, and then a complete stranger. A final question, um, Jonathan. Having written the book and given a huge amount of thought, you already, I'm sure, thought a lot about your friend. Do you feel you know him more or less having written the book? Is he more or less of a stranger having finished this 
I mean, it's a huge book. It's going to be a, a massive success. I think it's going to be one of the books of the year. The Best Mind is already getting great reviews. Do you feel that you, in a way, you kind of, you, you, you never conquered him, right? Did he, is he more of a question mark now, having written the book? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer. I, I think that's probably because questions like that are part of the book itself, I guess. I guess the most I hoped I could do was create a frame in which I could ask those questions, which haunt me and drive an aspect of the book. Uh, did the, his illness took him away from himself, but it also, as you said, defined him and became, you know, the thing he masked when he was trying to get a job became the source of his success. And so in a way, that's an element of it. I never knew Carrie, the woman he killed, and I worked very hard to talk to her amazing colleagues and friends to try to evoke her too. I didn't want her to vanish. And so everyone seems like a mystery in a way, um, but I'm closer to them. I'm closer to the mystery. Let's put it that way. 